90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Uh, I'm trying to survive, man. I feel like I'm living one of your weeks right now. Oh, no. (laughs) So I just got back from Arizona where I had a presentation and a drilling workshop, which was four jam-packed days. Um, And then I came back. I had two days of an R workshop. Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. And then... I taught today, and tomorrow I go to another drilling workshop for four days. And then oh, I have a field right. trip on Sunday on top of it. So, <laughs> Yeah, you're going to be on yeah. the road quite a bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's been rough. I feel like I have not been able to catch my breath, but it was my first drilling workshop, and it was really exciting. So I guess for people that don't know, um, you can get money from the National Science Foundation if you're planning to submit a big proposal like, you know, half a million dollars type thing, uh, to have, like, exploratory meetings. And so that's what this was, along with a field trip. And so I went out to the middle of nowhere in Parker, Arizona, and presented some of my magnetostratigraphy research and also talked to a lot of other people that do a lot of work on the Colorado River. And so we did that, looked for some drilling spots, and um, it was really great. I've never sort of been involved in one of those workshops especially with no one I didn't really know very many people there um it was really cool it was one of those things that's like this is neat that all these scientists can get together you know add their expertise to this big project and it looks like it's probably going to go forward and I'm pretty excited about it that's awesome so where's the next workshop so the next workshop is actually here in Norman um but it's an international continental drilling program workshop so an icdp workshop um to look at the permian in oklahoma and some people might say but shannon there's not many there's one big supercron in the permian which means it was mostly one polarity and i do magnetic stratigraphy um but there's a few changes down at the bottom and up at the top so that's what um i'm being tagged as the magstrap person for this so we will be doing that. I'm going to skip the field trip, though, because I already know what the Permian in Oklahoma looks like. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but it's so it's that same sort of drilling workshop thing. There's a few more people at this one. Um, and I get to do that all over again. So that should be exhausting. And, uh, yeah, I went to an R workshop. Yeah. So what did you think about R now that you've done Python 2? Yeah. So... I asked the person that was teaching this, and I'm like, how do you pick? How do you pick? I will say that I thought Python was a little more intuitive with my very minimal programming background than R was. So I'm I'm teaching another programming workshop this week in Python. Mm-hmm. And this very day that we're recording, I had the same discussion with a student. <laughs> because they said, hey, I've tried R before, and how do you choose what to use? Yeah. And I said, well, I haven't found anything that... R can do that Python can't. Okay. And you can call R from Python. Oh, you can. And if I look at the two syntaxes of the languages, to me, Python's a full-fledged, thought-out programming language, and R is like a scripting toy. Yeah, so, you know, we were using um, RStudio to interact with R, and we were uploading, we were specifically looking at it for astrochronology, so looking at, um, like, orbital parameter cycles and how that affects different types of sedimentation, which we can talk about on the show. Um, And so that's what we were looking at. So it looked like R had a bunch of really cool packages that go with it, so that was neat, but I did find it cumbersome. Well, and Python has tons of packages, too. I I say this full realizing that I'm a Python fanboy. But, yeah, I I agree. I don't like the syntax. I don't think, like, the plotting libraries are nearly as good. Okay. Well, Um, yeah, that's that's definitely what she said was that, you know, well, this wasn't made to do this. And it's like, well, okay. So all all she had us doing was plopping our stuff into Excel and then plotting from there. And I was like, oh, I know somebody that would not like this. <laughs> right. But I will say 
that you know everybody has a different problem they're solving they have different skill sets and all of our brains work in different ways Mm -hmm. so for some people they love art art gets the job done for them and you know having a hammer just because i like a different kind of hammer doesn't mean that we both can't you know drive the nail so it's a personal preference thing I just, I, I've tried R a couple times, and every time I walk away going, oh, that was disgusting. <laughs> but that's my personal, shot. that's my personal opinion. And uh, as somebody pointed out in the last workshop, they said, you seem to have strong opinions on things. <laughs> Not you. Um, so, so for real though, like, how does somebody choose? If they're like, all right, I'm going to get into these weeds. Like, what do you do? Because, like, my students, my graduate students, I made them all take statistics and because it is not a required course. And so they took stats, and they used R and Studio in the statistics class. And so they got super mad at me that I made them learn all this stuff. And then now they're like, oh, but I put this on my resume, and we talked all about it in one of my interviews. And I said, you're welcome. Maybe... I'm not a complete idiot, <laughs> but, but yeah, how do you choose? I mean, is it just how you're brought up and what you feel comfortable with? I mean, they could both do the same things, right? Uh, mostly I think. And I, I think here is somewhat where you need to one, try both and make your own opinion. Mm-hmm. And two, it is a good to have a, uh, you know, your own Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> uh, you need someone that, <laughs> has trodden this path with your kind of problem and can help guide you you should still form your own opinion because your opinion might be different than theirs yeah Uh, but but you need somebody to help guide you down the path of getting your problem rolling and then that's how you learn how to do that yourself so you can do future things on your own i thought a lot about this while we were doing the workshop um because it very much I had I actually had to leave and go teach in the middle of it and when I got back she had time to sit down with me and like get me caught up but getting me caught up and how you know she was teaching it 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 very much was like here you go this is how you do stuff you know and it made me think about how we always talk about if you want to start this stuff you have to have a problem right and it's like she had this preset problem and we just started straight in like she said these are the commands that do this this thing so just type in these commands you know and so it's seems so a different style of learning than sitting down and starting from the basics you know basically like starting from the alphabet right you go straight into just writing stuff so I thought that was that was interesting and I just thought a lot about how is that the best way to learn you know right so I don't know how your Python workshops, if you were to set it up yourself with no no one telling you how to do it, you know, is that how you do it? You've got this predefined problem and you go from there. So it's it's sort of difficult because you have to get the language, the, the fundamentals, the vocabulary down right. before you can even talk about the problem. Mm-hmm. But yeah. nobody likes writing a loop that goes, you know, five, four, three, two, one, blast off. Right, yeah. So... It's a hard problem. Teaching computer science is hard because you need to know everything at once. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. Like, just simply the instructions for downloading R and RStudio. You know, just reading that. And they're like, just do this. And it's like, but why? But what is that? How do I know which one of these crayon things to use? And what does this even mean, you know? Um, And we, of course, didn't talk about it. They just said, just get this stuff on your computer, so... And this is where, like, I I like to explain the fundamental data types Mm -hmm. and then start building from that of, for example, in Python. Okay, well, why do you, when you're calling a function in Python, do you have function name and then parentheses? Well, what data type in Python has parentheses? It's a tuple. So you're really passing a tuple of things to the function. That's, that's how the arguments are fundamentally getting passed. And people are like, oh, well, I always just thought you had to remember that it was function name and then parentheses. It's like, well, you can remember it or you can understand it. How right? does it's, it? Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, but I, then you can go down that rabbit hole too far. Yeah. And, you know, and say, well, and this is how it's stored in memory as a series of ones and zeros. No, they don't need to know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, see? And this is where I think people, I don't know. This is me speaking for how my mind works, but I'm sure I'm not alone in this. And this is where I want to know everything. And so I find it hard to jump in at not the beginning. And then I find it so overwhelming if that's what I have to do. Because, you know, I mean, it's the structure of the workshop that's being presented to me. I find it so overwhelming that I don't even know if I want to continue trying to learn the thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so far, I'm not down in the weeds where I want to be. And so it seems that it's an overwhelming amount of information. Because how far back do you go, you know? Right. And I think this is a question that everybody struggles with from a learner and from a teacher perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just doing several of these workshops rapidly in a row like I have, I've been very interested in watching how people take notes. Okay. And how some people write every single thing down and they say, I'll go back and read this and understand it later. Right now, I just need to capture everything that you're throwing at me. Yeah. Some people write nothing down. Some people draw mind maps. Some people take their notes on the computer, which to me is a sensible thing to do because you're learning computer programming. Some people write computer code on paper, which to me is not how I would learn. (laughs) You you don't program a notebook. You program a computer. Uh, But that's my learning style, not their learning style. Right. And by the end of the course, everybody's writing code, so everybody's effectively learning. It's just very challenging as an instructor to deal with. You have people that want to know, yeah, how does it store this? Like, How does electricity do math? And then you have people that say, I don't care how electricity does math. I need to make a plot for my boss by tomorrow or I'm dead. (laughs) Can we please do an episode that is how does electricity do math? (laughs) Because I also want to know this. (laughs) We should definitely do it. (laughs) oh my gosh i feel like when you came to work on my magnetometer that was exactly it i'm like how you plugged this thing in and you're listening to the machine what does that mean (laughs) what do you mean you're listening to it how do you know what you're doing and i feel like i'm already too old to learn all this stuff which is not true but i'm just saying that i feel that way sometimes (laughs) and i felt that way tonight trying to play xbox with my kid (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, yeah. electricity doing math is actually not a bad transition to this week's topic. Ah, where atoms are doing magnetometry. <laughs> yes. So this is going to be the, the final, I think, in our, our three-part series on deep dive into how the most common geophysical magnetometers work. And this week, it's all about the alkali vapor magnetometer. <laughs> And as you said, these are these three magnetometers are so aptly named. Like, how wonderful is this? Oh, yeah. Uh, very creative names. And mm-hmm. alkali vapor could be you know, any of several alkali elements. Uh, generally, in field geophysics, we're talking about a cesium vapor magnetometer. But okay. similarly, you could have a potassium vapor magnetometer. Okay. And so... We filled last week's magnetometer up with kerosene, but this is something entirely different, right? (laughs) Yeah, and this really blows my mind because a while back, you know, I said that, well, all the geophysical instruments look like little silver canisters. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So this, from the outside, looks almost exactly like a proton precession magnetometer when you're in the field. Uh You would never guess that inside... There are lamps, there are lenses, there are polarizers. It's optical. Yeah, that's, there's a heater. Right. I I don't even, yeah, this is very strange. And this has to do very specifically with those alkalis that we've chosen, right? Some of their specific physical properties make this possible. Right. So... We're going to end up talking about something called Zeeman splitting and the yeah. Zeeman levels. Uh, I hate chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You should hate chemistry, too. You're a geophysicist. Why are we doing this? 
This isn't geochemistry. No, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> so the the cesium atom, since that's the one we're going to focus on, okay. it has one electron in its outermost shell. Okay. So that is totally uninfluenced because it, there's only one in the outermost shell. If there are more in the outermost shell, then there would be some coupling between them. Okay. But it can change energy states however it wants based on incoming photons, right? Right. Okay. I Googled so can, cesium atom just so I got a map of this. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that electron can jump up and down. Mm-hmm. And electrons, if you remember, they have a charge and they have a spin. Right. So when you have an electrical charge that's spinning, mm-hmm. what do you get? <gasps> right hand rule. You get a magnetic field. Yes. <laughs> okay, I got that part. All right, great. <laughs> but this this is tiny, right? It's it's subatomic. Ooh. So <laughs> if uh, if that magnetic field that's generated by this electron aligns with the ambient field, the electron will have a lower energy than if it's opposed to the ambient magnetic field, the Earth's magnetic field. Okay. Right, that makes sense. And so, really, if we had some magical instrument that could tell you how the energy of the electron is changing as we rotated it around in space, mm-hmm. we could determine the strength of the field. Right. Because when it was aligned, it would be maximized or minimized, minimized. and when it was yeah. uh, perpendicular, it would be maximized. Mm-hmm. Right, that makes sense. And that energy difference is literally just the product of the ambient magnetic field times an atomic constant Mm -hmm. yes so fundamentally we're trying to measure the energy of an electron in the outer shell of a cesium atom should be just simple right right super easy (laughs) (laughs) and so um because quantum physics is totally you know 100 percent easy and all defined right (laughs) Right. <laughs> because that's what we're getting into now. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. So cesium or potassium, there's some rules about it, right? Yeah. And this is pretty wild. So we know that electrons can only exist in certain predefined energy levels, right? Right. Exactly. They work with quanta of energy. Correct. So, there's also a rule that says the electrons can only take on a limited number of orientations of that spin axis with respect to an ambient magnetic field. Okay. Is that just because of the shape? That is because of quantum physics. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you don't know. Okay, cool. (laughs) Yes. This is where a quantum physicist... uh, named Peter Zeeman, came up with this in 1902. Wow. And they have lots of fancy math to prove it. Mm-hmm. And having that... never taken a course in quantum physics, that is that is the limit of how deep I go on why there can be, in the case of cesium, nine unique orientations. Oh, God, that's great. It has, it has to do with something to do with its shape and the spin and the way those energy packets are allocated, right? It's something like that. But we'll just say those words and move on then. Right. And so each of these nine orientations, remember, they're going to be oriented differently to the ambient magnetic field. So the mm-hmm. electron has a different energy. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Because if it's aligned... Minutely different. <laughs> well, atomically, <laughs> subatomically different. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've seen stuff before where... Um, they can do magnetic maps of remnant magnetizations, which are on the, you know, crystal scale and the partitions and energy on the crystal scale. And you can make maps about like electron spin directions based on this stuff. So it's not, you know, particularly new that we can measure these things, but they are super tiny. And those are million dollar microscopes you have to use. Right, and here we're trying to do it with something that's going to get thrown in the back of an SUV, handled by airline baggage handlers, and then hooked up to a car battery and walked around a field. (laughs) So super easy, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. So 
the, the differences between these Zeman levels mm-hmm. are semi-equal and they are proportional to that ambient field. So okay. if we can measure the energy of the electron in these different orientations or at the different Zeman levels, we're in good shape. Okay, great. All right. So there's yes, a lot of <laughs> a lot of nuance in how this happens. I can't believe this can happen, but okay. <laughs> so instead of going through the rest of the process, I want to describe how the instrument's built. And then the process, I think, will be a little bit clearer. Hmm, we'll see about that. <laughs> so you might have to break out a, uh, a pad of paper for this one. Okay. Well, you heard me sharpening my pencil beforehand. So I did. So <laughs> on, the, on the left side of the paper, or one, one end of the magnetometer, if you will, Okay. We need a light source, which, as physicists know, by light source, I can mean anything from a light bulb to a particle accelerator to a ham radio transmitter. <laughs> it's, all fo- it's all photons, right? It's all photons. That's right. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. In this case, it's really a lamp. Okay. So you got a bulb in there. So you've got a bulb. The bulb is filled with cesium. Okay. So cesium makes a wavelength of 894.35 nanometers. Or for those of you that don't think in wavelength, that's uh, <clears throat> about 3.3 times 10 to the 16th hertz. Uh, okay. Yeah. So way up there in frequency. That's crazy high. Right. Okay. And so it, it makes our, our light source, and this it's pretty small, so maybe... Not quite a quarter of an inch in diameter, not quite a half an inch long. So like flashlight bulb size, back when right. flashlights had bulbs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. And the catch is, you might say, okay, well, you take a flashlight bulb and you use some kind of uh, tooling to remove the vacuum that's in it and replace that with cesium vapor, right? Okay, yeah. No. Mm. <laughs> So cesium is super chemically reactive. Remember, it's got that one electron in the outer shell, which really makes oh, atoms angry. Right. Yeah. I think we've, like, made stuff catch on fire with this before in the chem lab. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Forget so, I said that, OU. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's so reactive. If you stick electrodes inside a bulb and then apply electricity to them and get it hot, which makes explode. the reaction go faster, <laughs> yes. they corrode away. That's wonderful. <laughs> Okay, all right, so how do you get cesium vapor? So you put cesium vapor in a glass tube, but instead of putting electrodes in it, you wrap it in a coil Okay. and apply some RF energy to that coil. Okay, and this is on the outside of the glass tube. Right, and I happen to know that on the geometric systems, it's driven with 80 megahertz. Okay. It's not that essential what the driving frequency is. But you're pumping energy into this thing using RF instead of just directly a discharge uh, set of electrodes inside. Okay. So in the end, it's a weird-looking light bulb that glows and emits a very specific wavelength of light. Okay. Where does it emit it from if if it's wrapped up in this thing? Well, so the the coil doesn't go okay, so necessarily the end... over every surface of the tube. You can okay. wrap it axially or long ways. Okay, so the little ends are open or something like that. Okay, right. Gotcha. All right. All right. Great. So now we got this little shining cesium light. Okay. And like any light bulb, it's emitting uh, light rays in every direction. Right. And we need these to shine through a sensor in a specific orientation. Okay, so now we got some lenses that come into play, right? Yeah. Yeah, all right. So we've got our crazy thing that we need to focus. All right. So we're, we're focusing the light. So this would be, you know, twisting the, uh, the end of your mag light to get the, the spot. Oh, yep, yep, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So right now we have a cesium mag light. <laughs> a very, very expensive cesium <laughs> mag light. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, mag lights are pretty expensive, but this sounds even more so. Okay. <laughs> and 
Unfortunately, the cesium light doesn't only generate 894.35 nanometers. It generates some other frequencies of light as well. Oh, well, that's no good. And those other frequencies of light uh, significantly impact the signal-to-noise ratio that we're looking for, so we need to remove them, which means it's time for a filter. Polarize! Oh, so no, this is a... We get to a polarizer... Oh, but no, this, this is, this is a frequency-specific is... filter. Oh, this is pre-that. Okay, great. All yeah. right. All right. So you got your lens and you got your filter. What's the filter made of? Is this ridiculously expensive, too? I, I am sure it is very expensive. I <laughs> don't know exactly what it's made out of. If I had to guess, it would be something like a, a photo-etched silicon or photo-etched glass, something like that. Okay, so seriously, some kind of, like, disc that only lets the wavelength that we're interested in through right okay all right got it which now, is tiny that's a tiny hole right <laughs> that's why it's like photolithography is about yeah. the only process that can do this right yeah wow okay um right. okay so then we go to a polarizer because uh, we want to change the direction it's going in well yeah okay. but we normally think of light being polarized and we think of our you know our ray bands mm-hmm. where we can turn the two filters at 90 degrees to each other and all the light goes away if they're real ray bands not ones that you bought for five dollars exactly uh so those are linear polarizers mm-hmm. yes. these are circular polarizers okay great now we're getting into radar <laughs> <laughs> so in a linear polarized light source you have the electric field vector oscillating in one direction and the magnetic field vector oscillating in another direction that is perpendicular 90, to the electric 90, field. 90 degrees to that, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And okay. so you've got light that's in all kinds of crazy polarizations. You put your ray bands on and you only get that one polarization of light passing through. Correct. Which is why you don't get glare off things. Right. So circularly polarized light sources have the electric and magnetic field vectors still perpendicular to each other because we can't break physics. Yes. Well, I mean, quantum physics does sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> right. But they're rotating. Okay. So they're either clockwise or counterclockwise, right or left-hand polarized. Okay. This is really useful in RF, as you, you mentioned, radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so radar, radio antennas, satellite antennas, a lot of these things are circularly polarized. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, we have the issue here, and because of some nuances further on in the sensing system, if we only polarize right-handed or only polarize left-handed, we introduce about a 5 nanotesla air in one direction or the other. Which is pretty big because the thing we're measuring is small. Oh, so the Earth's magnetic field is 70,000 nanoteslas. Well, roughly. yeah, it's, so, a, it's a bunch of nanoteslas, but come on. <laughs> yeah, but we can do better, right? We're, exactly. We're, we're engineering this problem. We can do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we make a split polarizer. Ooh. And so it's split along the diameter where mm. one side is right-handed and the other side is left-handed. Ooh, that is fancy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wow. This is so we're intense. getting into some pretty expensive glass here already. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> okay. Hmm. How big is this part of the the sheet, you know, just for my drawing? Uh, so these lenses and polarizers would be less than a quarter of an inch in diameter. Okay, yeah, super okay, super tiny. All right, great. Right. Okay. Um well, okay, depends on depends on how old the magnetron is. Well, we'll say they could be up to an inch in diameter, but you're not going to see them any larger than that. Ah, all right. Okay. So they're still small. Gotcha. They're, you know, the size of a, a water bottle cap at most. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So now our right and left-handed polarized filtered focused light... <laughs> So that now our really expensive ultra mag light, <laughs> the Evian of light, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, uh, is going to impact the actual place where the sensing happens, which is okay. a cell of cesium vapor. 
Okay. In this cell, is it like a little glass tube again? Is this what we're yeah. talking about? Okay. It's a it's another little glass tube of cesium vapor, but we're not exciting it to make it emit light in any way. We're impacting it with light. Right. Okay. And it's uh, cesium vapor, and then there's a buffer gas in there. Uh-huh. So the buffer gas is used to slow things down. So we can measure it? Well, we need all of the cesium atoms to have roughly an aligned state okay. for this whole process to work. All right. And if they're flying around crazy because there's so many of them, Every time they hit the wall, their state gets randomized. They kind of elastically collide. Right. Okay. And if you have all of them hitting the wall all the time, they all just cancel out and you get no signal. Right. All right. Because it's a tiny little thing. Gotcha. Right. So we got a buffer gas. We got some vapor. The cesium evion of light <laughs> impacts this cell and some passes through, some doesn't. Okay. The sum we'll that doesn't is interacting with all the little cesium electrons that are in there already. Right. So it is optically pumping those electrons up. It's imparting energy to those. So they go to a higher energy state, and then they fall back down and emit their own light. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So that impacts how opaque the cell is to the cesium light. Because if you're... Okay. Yes, this makes sense. So if you're pumping all them up and they're starting to emit their own light, your avion of light's getting scattered everywhere. Right. Okay, yes. And we need to keep this cell at a roughly constant temperature. Uh-huh. Uh, because everything's temperature dependent when it comes to sensors. Right, well, yeah, and if you, different temperatures are gonna make them move at different speeds and stuff too, right? So you don't want that. Exactly. Yeah. So. The engineer would say, well, I'm just going to wrap some, you know, resistance wire around this to heat it up. Okay. But then you wrap wire around something and pass electric current through it. Now you've induced your magnetic field. Right. It's yeah. way stronger than the Earth's <laughs> yeah, magnetic field. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then that seven nanoteslas really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so they actually uh, double the wire back on itself and twist it really tight so that the right-hand rule from one part of the wire cancels with the right-hand rule from the other part of the wire. Yeah, you better count those little winds perfectly, huh? Right. Mm -hmm. And okay. then they drive it with an alternating current instead of a direct current, so the magnetic ah. field is continuously changing direction. There you go. Okay. So now you've averaged out any mistakes you've made winding it. Okay. So now we have our heated cell with variable amounts of light coming through, and we need to measure that light. Okay. A photocell is a great way to do this, but uh -huh. by now, our light beam has become defocused. So we need another lens. So we need another lens. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we've got another lens, and it is focusing that light on the photocell. It doesn't have to be a great focus. It just has to collect most of the light and make sure it hits our little sensor. So how do you do this if you've got this little circular guy, you know? And what does this lens look like that you're getting all of all of the light focused if you're emitting light all over that little cell in every direction? So you're only going to get the light from, you know, one end. You're only going to get a plane of it. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, so here's where you would have your concave lens that's going to focus that light in to a point. Okay. Or to a, in reality, a slightly uh, defocused uh, spot uh, because yeah, your source yes. is deep. Right, yeah. An almost point. A fuzzy point. Right. Okay, yeah. All I right. mean, this is geology after all. It's a point. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> oh, engineers, we apologize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we don't. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> all right, so you got your fuzzy point on your photo cell. Right. Okay. And so now we need to amplify that signal because it's tiny. Mm -hmm. oh. Like the tenth of a millivolt. Oh. <laughs> something like that. It's small. Wow. <laughs> okay. So we amplify it, but we need to amplify it taking a lot of care to not modify the phase of the signal. Right. Because if you're amplifying it, you can interact with it and mess it up. 
Right. And since we're looking at, as you'll soon realize, an AC signal on mm-hmm. our photocell, mm-hmm. every degree of phase shift is about a nanotesla of air. Wow. Okay. And in electrical engineering, a lot of times you're like, oh, well, yeah, okay, it's a phase shift. As long as it's less than 45 degrees, eh, mm-hmm. or something. No, no, it's very important here. Right. Okay. So this is used, uh, this uses a circuit called a uh, Larmor amplifier. Okay. It's if French. You wanna... Sounds expensive. Right. If you want to go, <laughs> go knock yourself out reading about different kinds of phase preserving amplifiers, that's the one you want to look up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> oh, there's so a lot now, of videos, but those those look like bands named Lamour. Not the same thing, I'm guessing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Go ahead. So now that's all the parts of our instrument. All right. All right. So how do we actually make it work? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> You just hit it a few times and it'll turn on, right? <laughs> right. So we actually send some RF, some radio frequency energy, mm-hmm. into that sensing cell. So I sort of lied when I said it not doesn't have anything impacting it. Mm-hmm. We just... send it in at a frequency that just matches the energy difference between different orientations, different Zeeman levels. Okay. So it doesn't look like anything. Right. Okay. RF, just like everything else, like I said, it's a light source. They're photons too. They just are photons with low energy. That's so weird. That's <laughs> I mean, weird. When you, well, when you listen to FM radio, it's just low energy photons traveling from an antenna to your antenna. That doesn't even make sense. So, <laughs> uh, oh, physics. Okay. Great. So, this RF frequency is going to impact those electrons and kick them over to other orientations where they're then again absorbing light from our cesium lamp. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And the the light passing through our cell is at its minimum when the RF frequency that we're using is correct for the ambient field. Right, because, yes. So we have, a, we, we have a closed-loop control here, right? Okay, right, yeah. So what we do is we look at the light, and we say, can we make it any dimmer by twiddling the RF that we're pumping in? Mm-hmm. And so we, we modify the RF, and nope, okay, that's the minimum brightness. Then because of math, I can tell you what the ambient field is. <laughs> the ambient right. field changes. We need to tweak our RF frequency a little bit because the light would have gotten brighter. Okay. So which the we, which we know by monitoring the light that's coming into the photo cell, right? Okay. So the the cesium lamp that's shining our special Evian light into the cell, the sense cell, is pumping the electrons. It, it's an optical pump. It's giving them more right. energy. Right. The RF that we're using is sometimes called a depumping coil. Okay. It's, it's kicking these electrons back over to another orientation. It's bringing them down. Mm-hmm. Okay. So by carefully balancing this pumping and depumping, mm-hmm. we can get the cell to a semi-steady state where we always know what the ambient field is. Ah, interesting. Okay. So do you have to, you as the operator, mess with that, or it does all this by itself? It is all done internally. Of course. It's literally just a tube, and nobody knows what's happening inside it. Okay. <laughs> right. And so th- there are different strategies to do this. Uh, some instruments do actually sweep the RF back and forth mm-hmm. very, very fast. To try to look... figure out the minimum. Right. And they just look for the minimum. Uh, that's called a swept vapor magnetometer. Okay. Uh, some actually just hold that at a fixed frequency and monitor the light change. Oh, and then math it out. Right. Okay. And then there are some other control theories uh, that are not that well documented because I'm pretty sure they're going to be industry secret, you know, sauce to how Ah. this particular model works. All right. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Cool. 
So it blows my mind that in this little white plastic tube that we bang around, <laughs> there's all of this very sensitive optical equipment. Uh, yep. And we let grad students touch it. <laughs> we let undergrad students touch it. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. These that's are not cheap. So, I mean, how much shielding is happening in this thing? Uh, you don't have to have a crazy amount of shielding. I- I'm sure there's a some sort of semi-grounded uh, plane around the RF section, but yeah, okay, uh, yeah. So, you know, we said uh, a proton precession magnetometer, thousands of dollars to ten thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here you're probably looking at tens of thousands of dollars yeah. for a brand new one. Yeah, that's. I just clicked shopping on google (laughs) 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 yeah Hmm. okay because it looks like they use these in uh toad on boats too oh yeah which is crazy Hmm. the the tow cable right here on ebay is five thousand dollars itself right and i'm sure that's heavily used (laughs) Mm, uh yeah five five Oh, no, yeah. only used 100 hours, so not too bad, but still. Oh, okay. Yeah, $5,000. <laughs> so why would you pay that much more? One, these are super sensitive. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, two, unlike the proton precession magnetometer, where you stand there, you press the button, you wait about a second, and it goes beep and takes the reading. Mm-hmm. This is taking a reading at tens to hundreds of data points per second. Yeah, so instantaneously. So Roughly. you strap this on your back with a GPS and you just walk. Mm. Which sounds like a dumb thing. And maybe people would be like, why would you pay that much more just to be able to do that? But, oh, that sounds amazing if you've ever actually done stuff in the field with magnetometers. <laughs> yeah. Like, just the ability to, yeah, just walk. Don't have to stand in a choir. Well, and, you know, sometimes you stand in a choir and then you get back and plot the data and a point really close to your interesting feature, just like something went wrong and it's a bad data point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you've got hundreds of data points a second. So throw out the five bad ones. It's fine. Right. Exactly. Yep. So that's nice. This is the one type of magnetometer mm-hmm. that if you Google how to build a you can find how to build a fluxgate magnetometer, how to build a proton precession magnetometer. If you Google how to build an alkali vapor magnetometer, you will be sorely disappointed. (laughs) From what I can tell, nobody at the hobby level has built one of these. Okay, yep. So gauntlet thrown down to those of you makers that listen. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blow yourselves up with that cesium vapor, though. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or corrode the the tar out of whatever you're using Hmm. interesting now this made this made a lot of sense for you know the magic going on behind behind the the cylinder so to speak (laughs) yeah and i would actually be super interested in trying to make one of these uh but it would be very expensive Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're gonna have to wait till uh yeah wait a little while to do that one (laughs) right you know wait until we get uh uh, silicon fab facilities at the the hobbyist level yeah exactly (laughs) you can make all your 894.35 nanometers filters right (laughs) (laughs) but it might be fun just to try to make a cesium lamp and pump it with rf and look at it with a spectrometer like that doesn't seem unachievable yeah that's true and people are like, why is this lamp so dim? <laughs> right. And, you know, it would give me a chance to do something that I've always thought would be super interesting, uh, which is learn a little bit more about scientific glass blowing. Oh, yes. Um, I became quite buddy-buddy with the glass blower here at OU, who is the only uh, scientific glass blower in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, there aren't many. (laughs) No, there are not. And what I've learned is you have to be insane to do that job. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure he would take as a compliment. So, (laughs) yeah. 
Yeah, no, there's a there's a scientific glass blowing shop in Boulder, and the work they do is just amazing. Oh, it's unbelievable. All the weird twists and turns, but not even just like a weird twist and turn, but twists and turns within a larger glass cylinder. Like it's the stuff that this guy could do was very, very impressive. I will admit, I'll be pretty happy if I could make, you know, my little one inch in diameter tube of cesium. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. I mean, I I would call that a win. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We need um, big, they're probably like three inch diameter, just a half, a U-shaped piece of glass. And I remember that one of our students made that for our lab and was so excited. And it's like, (laughs) you know, next to all these super intricate things. And we're all like, yeah, you made that super easy thing. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, yes, I would definitely be a win to be able to make that. But, well, do you have any other thoughts on the uh, the cesium vapor or alkali vapor magnetometer? No, it's really interesting. I would, I mean, so cesium or sodium is what is commonly used. Yeah, sodium's that, another good one. Yeah, I just, I wonder what makes people, I wonder if there's any differences. Like, it's, does one perform better than the other? Uh, my guess would be that you're looking at different excitation frequencies and different right. difficulties of getting the atoms excited. Right. So. so it probably is a, this is the most efficient one to do on batteries that you strap on your waist. Ah, uh, okay. That if I had sense. to guess. That makes sense. So, no, that, that, that made a lot of sense in terms of magnetometry, but yeah, I can probably, I'll just stick with my cryogenic one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is also really expensive. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, we did get some feedback uh, from a listener. Uh, mm-hmm. So listener Ben, who says, well, I used vector magnetometer data from Project Magnet, which was not paleomagnetics. No. <laughs> uh, so this was ship toad data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so they had proton precession magnetometers and flux gates for the vectors. Yep. There you go. But now they do cesium vapor ones too, because I found this thing on eBay, Ben. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's really unbelievable what you can find on eBay. You're absolutely right. You've always told me that, but it's 100% right. It's addictive. (laughs) Yeah, real creepy. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, uh, before we we move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, while we're doing some some listener feedback, I also have to give a shout out to one of our listeners, uh, not going to disclose their names that I didn't mention to them that I was going to mention this uh, but they're in the course that I'm teaching this week and showed up in a don't panic t-shirt oh my gosh that's amazing that is amazing while I was at my drilling workshop there were several people who said oh yeah I listened to your podcast it's great so Uh, thanks he also requested that we have uh, another t-shirt campaign because his t-shirt's getting a little worn Oh, nice. We're getting the we're getting the super soft t-shirts this time. I'm going to overrule you. I know you yeah. gave me the option last time, but yeah. So another t-shirt campaign is coming. Uh, you'll see that in show notes uh, probably in another week or two. Awesome. All right. Well, that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. No cowbell. <laughs> No cowbell. <laughs> Traveling weeks are the worst, man. Yeah, I know. Need yeah. to get a travel cowbell. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I want you to carry it on, though. So, so listeners, to... if, if you see a miniature cowbell, yep. mm-hmm. we, we need one. I want you to have to explain every time you get on a plane. <laughs> Why I'm carrying a cowbell. No, yes. no, no, sir. This is my travel cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is a great listener paper that we got in here, too, right? And I'll let you say it so you can pronounce that name. (laughs) Yes, this is a paper sent in by listener Jonathan, linking plasma formation in grapes to microwave resonances of aqueous dimers by Katak et al. (laughs) Good job. I love papers that are based on YouTube videos. (laughs) Right. Um, which I'd actually never seen this before, um, but this is in, so this is in PNAS, 
and it's got this great little box. I know we always talk about the layouts of papers that talks about the significance of this paper right on the front page, right? And the very first sentence says, in a popular parlor trick, plasma is created by irradiating grape hemispheres in a household microwave oven. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I will say I was, I was disappointed by the jargon loading of that box and the whole paper. Mm-hmm. That's for sure, man. Especially because of the premise of like, hey, this is a cool thing. Let's figure out how it really works. But also you should have 12 degrees before you can figure out how this really works based on sentence number two and three, really. Right. Yeah, I thought that too. I actually read some of the sentences out loud to my husband. It was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the the YouTube videos show that you cut a grape in half, but you leave a little bit of the skin holding the halves together. Mm-hmm. lay it open, put it in a microwave, and it erupts in this ball of plasma. And if you try this at home, be warned, you might ruin your microwave. That's unfortunate. <laughs> but there are tons of videos, so you can just watch those instead. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to figure out what the trick is. Like, what's the, what is the property that's actually producing this plasma? Yes, and so they used a lot of interesting techniques to try to figure this out. Uh, My favorite one uh, initially was not only did they just video it, but they looked at the spectra of the plasma Mm -hmm. and said, okay, yeah, so we're looking at, uh, you know, potassium and sodium species. Mm -hmm. Because one of the tricks is... Do the two different hemispheres have to be connected by this flap of grape skin in between them, right? Does it work with other ways of these two? And that was one of the things they talked about when they were talking about, you know, why is this working in general? Right, because if you look at the video that they took, the plasma starts underneath that little skin bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I dislike the term skin bridge immensely. <laughs> I, I'll agree with that. Uh <laughs> And so then the questions were, well, what if we put two grapes, whole grapes, next to each other, just touching each other, held together by the force of putting them in a concave watch glass? Right. And I think here we need to define the word dimers as used in the title, right? Because that is two things that are exactly the same. Right. Right. So two separate, two halves of the same grape, exactly the same chemically. Right. Anyway, carry on. Or so here, two grapes from the same right. the same batch that are put together. Right. Yeah. And, yep, they generate plasma. There you go. So that dimer works. <laughs> and then they said, well, is it something special about grapes? Uh, so they took these little uh, water balls. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and put them together. And also got plasma mm-hmm. yeah and so it comes down to the water part of these things right right as as you would expect so water is heavily influenced by microwave energy mm-hmm. and that is generating massive amounts of heat so they wanted to know more about how much heat and that means thermal cameras and little thermal paper that they burned through yeah that was cool <laughs> Which uh, was cool <laughs> So I will say, I almost didn't choose to talk about this paper when I saw that their thermal images <laughs> are shown in the jet color map. <laughs> I knew you were going to be angry about this. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, well, look, the energy is concentrated in the center. It's like, well, maybe, but this, this color map is totally not perceptually uniform and makes it really hard to tell. Uh, yeah. Oh, jet. It's terrible. But yes, you're correct. So they used that. Um, They saw that you got concentrations in temperature rise and energy density at the centers or at the contact points of these dimers. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Other than that, I don't want to talk about the thermal images too much because I can't stand to look at them. Oh my gosh i love it so much people think i am so obnoxious when i point that out 
you know, when they've done that in a presentation. But man, it's a big deal. It is because you're like, oh, look, well, there are three distinct zones of heat. No, there are not. There are three distinct bands that are not perceptually uniform in this color map. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So how do you, uh, yeah, anyway. The fact that that looks like that and the energy energy density plots, which are on a better mm-hmm. color map, I'm not going to say great, but a no, better color map, better. don't yeah. show those bands. No, they sure don't. Not at all. So, yeah, that. That's really interesting. I actually might clip that figure out and use it when describing the importance of choosing your color map. Right. You know? Hmm. Anyway. So they did that, and then they put uh, paper around the two grapes and 15 layers of it between the two. Mm-hmm. And this is like receipt printer paper. Right, yeah, thermal paper, yep. They call it thermally activated paper. It's like, no, you went to McDonald's. And we're like, how much for a roll of receipt tape? No, they weren't. They went to McDonald's and they said, hey, look over there. (laughs) (laughs) And then grabbed that thing. (laughs) Anyway, yes, (laughs) carry on. (laughs) So they saw burning uh, Mm -hmm. in their 15-layer shims. But interestingly enough, not in the parts that touch the grapes. Yeah, I thought that was strange. Just in the centers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really, that was weird. So then, you know, they, they say, well, it's clearly something not about the grape cut being cut apart. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily about the grape's composition. We just need it to be conductive something, hence why right. these little water, water sacks water work. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be something about the size. Yeah. And... One of the best, one of the best section titles of a paper, Surface Geometry and Hollow Quail Eggs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, yes, they tried it on other things of similar sizes, including quail egg. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, they filled up with water and yeah. Um, so this paper ticks a lot of your boxes, except for that whole jet color scheme, right? Videography and all this stuff. Um, no lasers, but plasma. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And so what the conclusion is, is, uh, this, this plasma is generated because these objects are resonant at these frequencies. So that basically you generate a standing wave that constructively interferes with itself. And then explodes into plasma right so you get incredible (laughs) amounts of heating you get focusing of this energy Mm -hmm. right and i already hear people saying why did we pay for this our tax dollar well unless you're canadian your tax dollars didn't Mm -hmm. the study was done in canada Uh, but if you are canadian and want to know why your tax dollars paid for it there is a reason okay so it would be really nice to be able to generate highly localized heating when you're manufacturing nanoscale sensors and electronic devices. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes If you a lot could sense. fuse, if you could weld something down inside a nanoscale sensor. And now, thanks to this paper, which also they did some computer modeling uh, of this whole setup, mm-hmm. you can design a, a system where you could pump energy in at the right frequency with the right type of antenna and excite a very certain part of a device to the point where it heats up, even gets to a plasma, and you help construct that sub-nanometer device. That actually seems very powerful. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, that's why. That's why grapes in the microwave is a big deal. So people put grapes in the microwave. One day we might be using it to manufacture accelerometers for your cell phones. There you go. See? You never know. What do they say? The only difference between science and screwing around is writing it down. Exactly. (laughs) That'd be a good tagline for the show. Yeah. (laughs) I think Adam Savage said that or uh, or somebody similar. Oh, that's Uh, real good. And so true. Yes, absolutely. That's wonderful. Well, listener Jonathan, thanks for that excellent um, paper, despite that color scheme. But, you know, it was still really good. 
Yeah, and it is uh, open, so open access, so you can go get the PDF now. Great. If you have a fun paper that you would like us to talk about, or if you did try putting grapes in your microwave and want to send us pictures <laughs> of the devastation, <laughs> we would love to see it. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Uh, send us your email, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And then we can also see those pictures or videos in our Slack chat room. We're on the Software Underground and the Don't Panic channel. As always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon to help keep this podcast coming at you, it's patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.